Have you ever had that heart-stopping moment when you realized you forgot the password to a critical account? I have, and that's exactly why I switched to 1Password years ago, and honestly, it's been a game-changer. I can't do without 1Password, and I know that if you give it a try, you will feel the same way. And when you support our sponsors, then you support the show. So I encourage you to check out what 1Password has to offer One of the things 1Password has to offer is it combines top-tier security with an award-winning design, making password management a breeze for anyone, anywhere. From the moment I started using 1Password, I said goodbye to the days of resetting passwords and worrying about security breaches. You see, 1Password isn't just about convenience. It's about saving you from the real cost of data breaches and the daily time suck of password resets. It works seamlessly across all your devices, filling in passwords for you so that you can sign in with a click. And the best part, all you need to do is remember one strong password that protects everything else. I've been using 1Password for as long as I can remember. My family is using it. Everyone in this household has bought in. It's, again, a game changer. It's completely transformed how I handle my digital security and my family feels the same way. We've gotten away from using the same passwords again and again and again, or sticky note reminders or having that notebook that says passwords I must remember. Plus, 1Password is trusted by millions, including giants like IBM and Slack. With 1Password, my digital life and my family's digital life is not only more secure, but infinitely simpler. And look, if you've ever been frustrated by a family member constantly asking for passwords, 1Password's secure sharing has been a total relationship saver for me. It's so secure that the Associated Press relies on it in high-risk areas, which means it's more than capable of keeping your digital life safe and streamlined. So why not make the switch? Protect yourself, your family, and your business with 1Password. It's the simple and secure way to manage your digital life. And right now, listeners of A Productive Conversation get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash ProductiveConvo. That's two free weeks at onepasswordcom slash productive convo. Again, onepasswordcom slash productive convo. Check out one password. I know you'll fall in love with it like my whole family has. Again, that's onepasswordcom slash productive convo for two free weeks. Check it out today. Have you ever considered the impact your work environment has on your health and your productivity? Enter uplift desk a revolutionary standing desk designed to transform the way you work and that's just the beginning of what uplift desk has to offer with an emphasis on ergonomics and customization uplift desk offers a solution that caters to the dynamic needs of modern professionals whether you're coding designing or podcasting like i am right now the flexibility to switch between sitting and standing can significantly enhance your focus and vitality What makes Uplift Desk stand out is not just their commitment to quality and innovation, but also their dedication to creating a healthier workspace. With options to customize from over 100 desktop materials and a plethora of accessories, Uplift Desk ensures that your work setup is uniquely yours, promoting better posture and movement throughout the day. And here's an offer to get you started on a healthier work journey starting today. Go to upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting for 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting to get 5% off your entire order. Your health, your productivity, your future self will thank you. Again, that's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting and get 5% off your entire order today. Hey, I'm Juliette Funt, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. I'm Mike Vardy, and this week, this episode is another one from The Vault. This one is from November of 2021, and Juliette and I had a really great camaraderie. We just hit it off. We've had conversations both before and after that episode, I am holding in my hands right now the book, A Minute to Think. There are elements of this book that I still share today. 
I love this book and I love the conversation that we had, which is why I wanted to bring it back out of the vault and share it with you this time around. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here is my productive conversation, a productive conversation with Juliet Font from the vault from November of 2021. Enjoy. Juliet. I want to take a minute to thank you for being on the podcast and, I th- <laughs> and, and and to putting this book together because I think this is a book that a lot of people there's 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 a few books that have come out lately that I'm really gravitating towards. Oliver Berkman's mm-hmm. got a new book out called Four Thousand Weeks is phenomenal. Yes, uh, I keep hearing about that. Uh, uh, Indistractable by Nir Yell, who's been on the podcast. Um, but when I went through this, I'm like, yes, like it was a a big. Um, sigh of relief because we're seeing more people talk about this kind of thing. And there's nobody that I've seen talk about white space and room to breathe and taking the pause than you. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad to have that conversation. Yay, with you today. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that struck me right away out of the book, and I, I don't like to reveal too much in a book, especially stories, but when you were telling the story about starting a fire, uh, it, it, uh, I'm a city guy too. So my wife <laughs> is from the Yukon. And so, oh. yeah. So, so she's good at she's it. Good, yeah. I mean, to survive. And so, no, I'm just, <laughs> no, but I mean, <laughs> she's from a cabin in the backwoods they, without running water. They, they have a cabin in the backwoods. They have running water, but they have an outhouse. So, I mean, which we mm. go there, it's quite lovely, but, uh, to go uh, when I when I was reading about that and it, it harkened back to the time where I was like learning how to start a fire, my wife and, and my mother in law put the fire together. I'm like, oh, that that idea of fire needing space, right, to be mm-hmm. able to really, um, it got me thinking about uh, the, the the putting the fire together. You think it's got to be all this stuff that'll let the fire, like that'll spark the fire. And when it comes to the things that we want to do and the things we want to accomplish, by cramming so many things in, we think about quantity, right? Like getting as much, but it's that space, right? So can we touch on that right out of the gate? Because I think a lot of people get so into let's do, 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 instead of like, wait, let's have that pause. Let's have that space that we need. That's actually the foundational metaphor of all of the work is that you have a spark within you and I do and everyone does. And we need oxygenating passages for that space to ignite. And if we don't have them, that's when engagement falters and we're exhausted and we can't seem to touch any meaning in work because it feels so far away. <clears throat> because as you said, we're just going and doing and doing. And this this general idea of stopping and addressing the fact that work is not a pie eating contest is a a critical thing that you must talk about before you move to how to have a productive day. That macro philosophy of more is not the answer, I I think has to be unpacked in a really purposeful way by individuals and teams before they can even talk about tips or tools or productivity. Well, and one thing that you brought up again early on in the book, and you you uh, you cited it because you had an interview with um, uh, the author uh, or with the person who came up with it, um, and I'm it's escaping me right now. But as soon as I mention performative busyness, yeah, that's Juliet B. Shore. Thank you. Oh, I love her. Uh, uh, but but so that's that phrase, right? Perf- well, you just glanced over it, yep. so let's make sure they hear it. Yeah, performative busyness. Yes. That's what we do all day long. It's it's one of my favorite pieces in the book. Well, and what I love about it is that so many people have said, well, it's expected of me. It's expected of mm. me. They, they're making me this way. They, they, they. And there's a line. There's a line right that says, like, it's no longer they anymore. It's now become, we've become acclimatized. It's just, it's, it's it, you can't say, you have to take responsibility for it now. It's no longer just somebody else that's saying, this is the way it is. Like, no, 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 no. We, it, it, it doesn't quite cop out that way. Can we talk about that a bit? Because I think that there's some tug of war that goes on there for sure. I think we should. I mean, to a certain degree, you always have to acknowledge the worker in a giant company <clears throat> who feels completely like a passenger on this ship that someone else is designing and driving and directing. And that's that's not a false reality. Right. That's not something that they're pretending. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the amount of agency that we have over our busyness is is incredible. In fact, there's a graphic that we didn't put in the book. Okay. I wanted this in the second to last chapter of the book, and it was the 12 most important things in the book that you could actually tactably 
tactically do Mm -hmm. to create a more easy work style and which of them you could do completely on your own and which of them you required team or company buy-in. And it was 12 and it was 10 of them you could do 100% on your own. And two of them, you did need a little bit of team or cultural acknowledgement to make easy, but Mm -hmm. it's 10 out of 12. So there's huge areas where we can start on our span of control, our own inbox, our own values, our own belief systems, our own desk. There's so many places to start mm-hmm. before we get to the corporate mothership is ruining my life. And and that's, you know, that's in there too, but we have a lot of steps to take first. I want to talk about insatiability because you've, you've divided the book up mm-hmm. into some interesting parts. And what I like is... Uh, it's right out of the gate. You're, you talk about insatiability, and then we, we're going to get into the white space because I think that's huge. Um, what, when it comes to insatiability, how how does someone kind of keep at bay the things that, again, that idea of we've got to do as much as possible as opposed to the things that are really going to satiate, the things that are really going to mm-hmm. kind of fill our cups? I think that that filter, I think, is really important. You touch on that. Um, can we dive into like that that insatiability, how it can be a curse? Because you get into that uh, yes. quite a bit. Yes. Matthew Fox was um, a writer who wrote a book called The Reinvention of Work. And he said, people want work where they can serve others with their labor and where they can dance their dance. And that's all we want is we just want to serve and dance. We want to wake up in the morning with that little spark that is our contribution, our meaningful talent. And we want to walk in and we want to see it blossom into something that at the end of the day, we went, wow, that had meaning, that moved a needle, that helped a person. That's the goal of work. And we don't, we end up, we walk in with our spark. Mm -hmm. We are assaulted by an avalanche of crap. And we wade through emails and meetings and decks and reports all day long. And then at the end, some moment comes around six, maybe seven, where we look up at the ceiling and say, did I do anything today? Yeah. Did I did I get anything done today? So that that is a result of a basic misconception of confusing activity with productivity. And because we have kind of an insatiable feeling that more is better and that productivity should look like a fast forward movie of some character zipping around from thing to thing, mm-hmm. we confuse the motion with the result. And if I sat, if you and I sat in a conference room and we got in there at 8.30 and we had some Danish and we took out legal pads, we put away all of our technology and we sat quietly until five o'clock and at 4.49, one of us had a gigantic idea that was game-changing, that would have been an incredibly productive day, but not at all an active day. Right. We just we just don't understand those two dichot- that dichotomy, and if we did, we could start unpacking that insatiability is really about something else. It's about professional anxiety. It's about showing off. It's about walking into someone else's value system that we haven't really questioned. There's so many pieces to that that have nothing to do with producing. Productivity is to produce something of value. And insatiability can take us far, far off field. It reminds me of a time, because I know when I was looking through your bio that you did some work with Costco, you've spoken. And I came oh, from yeah. Costco. I actually worked at the warehouse level, though. So that would that's what brought me out west. I ran the, at the warehouse level, I ran both the service deli, where you get the rotisserie chickens, and the hot oh. dog area, where you get the hot we dogs. We have to talk about the chicken in a second, because <laughs> I have to know what's in it. If something is in that, that makes I, it taste different, but I, we'll talk about that in a minute. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, um, at least when I was there, it was, okay. uh, well, no, it was Sprite. We, <gasps> would, we would put some Sprite on it to kind of give it that bit of, uh, there, there's salt in, you put a, a teaspoon of salt in the actual, you know, like the cavity, but we mm. would, we would, we would give a little bit of Sprite to it, which it was helpful because I was in charge of the food court. So I was able to grab some of that, but that would be one of those things that you would do. I don't know if they do that anymore, uh, but that was one of the things that, anyway, um, so there you go. A little, little, little behind Costco, the, back, know, to little Costco, back to yes. Costco. So, so when I was running the service deli, we had, um, the, there's occasionally sales where they would do these big coupons where you get the coupons in the mail and it's like chicken ball pie is going to be on sale. And you had to get really creative because you knew that there would be more people buying chicken pot pies than you could possibly produce. So you had to get really smart about it. But one year they did these little pieces called salmon tips. And there are these little pieces that you'd put on, on bagels or whatever. And I remember that we were, we weren't, we weren't a very big service deli where, where I worked. And 
what we wanted to do was kind of show and increase sales. And I remember like we went through all the producing throughout the course of the day because that's what you're doing. And then there was a, a time where I had enough people and I could go and I sat in the office and I came up with this. I remember walking past the meat department where they had the fish cases, where they keep the fresh fish, these big blue things that look like pallets. And mm-hmm. I said, what if we took, we, what if we borrowed those? And use those and put them in there instead of putting them in the traditional deli cabinets where people would be looking. And then I talked to one of my managers about it, who also, we were both just kind of chilling again, like that Danish, we're sitting in the break room having a coffee. He goes, what if we put it at the front of the warehouse? Like as you walk Mm. in, these things, I'm like, yeah, can we do that? He goes, yeah, we did that. And we were number one for sales and salmon tips in Western Canada because he did that. Now, that may not sound like a lot. It's a big, like, wow, big deal, Mike. But we would never have done that if we didn't not just take the time to sit aside, but had the mental space, the bandwidth to be able to do it. And it brings me to the old John Cleese idea of the two things you need to be truly creative are time and space. You have so Mm -hmm. much time, but no space, you feel constrained. You have so much space, but no time, you feel rushed. Um, in the book, you talk about these pauses, right? And the pause comes up, yes. the white space. And what was interesting is that you do have a diagram in here where it shows like early on in the book where it's like we had these breaks, but then what did we fill it with, right? So can we talk about the importance of, of the pause, but also making sure that they're, the, they're, they're used properly, that they actually can result yes. in something? Have you ever looked into fasting and thought, I love the benefits, but I can't go days without eating? Well, that's where Prolon comes in, transforming the fasting experience with a plant-based nutrition program that tricks your cells into thinking they're fasting without actually having to stop eating. Developed through decades of research at the University of Southern California Longevity Institute, Prolon is not just another diet, it's a scientifically backed program designed to support your body's natural processes. Now keep in mind, this isn't about cutting out food, it's about providing your body with the right nutrients to enter a fasting state while still eating. The program includes snacks, soups, and beverages, all carefully designed to support healthy blood sugar levels, cardiovascular health, and even reduce abdominal fat. And the convenience? It's unmatched. Everything you need comes in one box delivered right to your doorstep. Thousands of doctors now recommend Prolon for its health benefits, backed by Nobel Prize winning science. So if you're looking for a way to kickstart your health journey with all the benefits of fasting and none of the hunger, Prolon is the answer. And right now, Prolon is offering a Productive Conversation listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash timecrafting for this special offer. Again, that's prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. Check it out today. Ever caught yourself marveling at the seamless magic of everyday tech, like how noise-canceling headphones block out the world or the sheer bliss of meeting-free Fridays? Now imagine if there was a way to bring that kind of magic into selling online. Well, guess what? There is, and it's called Shopify. From the moment you decide to launch your online shop to opening your first physical store, and even when you're pinching yourself because, yes, you just hit a million orders, Shopify is there to guide your growth. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or the latest productivity tools, Shopify supports you everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. The checkout, oh, it's a breeze for your customers, converting up to 36% better than other platforms. And with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant, you're selling more with way less effort. And you won't be alone in your Shopify journey because Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., supporting giants like Allbirds and Brooklinen and millions of entrepreneurs across 175 countries. Their award-winning support is always there, making sure businesses that grow, Grow with Shopify, and yours can be one of those businesses. And for those looking to level up, Shopify's endless integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to chatbots ensure your business is always ahead of the curve. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash timecrafting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash timecrafting. 
So there's so much to cover there. I know. The, <laughs> the idea. So there is one element that's missing in modern work that the entire book is about. And if we had it back, everything would feel different. We would feel calmer. We would have ease and we would touch meaning every day. And that's the space you're talking about. Mm. We call it white space because in the old days of executive coaching, when I would look at a paper calendar of an executive, I would be looking for how much white space, literal white. And we knew from watching patterns that that white space was an indication of how much possibility that day could hold. And you see throughout the book, there are examples of, if you show me a really productive, amazing leader who's achieved great things, they take this kind of space for granted. Jeff Weiner, who has blocks he calls nothing on his calendar, Phil Knight, who had a chair that was in his living room that was only for daydreaming. Mm -hmm. And leaders who build space in, you'll notice you didn't have the idea about the salmon tips sitting in a meeting about salmon tips. No, no. Or, or, had or the, a status meeting that we normally, it was, it was a, there, there was no expectation. I think that's the right. key thing, right? And you were moving, you were doing the old managing by walking around because yep. you had space. And so you saw the blue palettes. And so this kind of ideation that comes from space feeds the fire and not just, and this is so critical, not just in the sense of our recuperating, because when most people think of white space, the first thing that comes in their mind is rest. They think I need space so I can go, ah, I'm so exhausted. I'm so burned. I need to just stare at a window for a while. But that's only 25% of the way that professional people use space in the day. They also use it to ideate, reflect, create, construct. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the whole book is a guy named John, who's a security guard. You might remember this story. But he, he is a security guard which means that 5% of his job is assigned to action and 95% is waiting to yep. see if anything happens. And in that waiting, he has actually created so many patents. He's a very creative thinker, but he's created so many patents that he has the number one patent record in his company, which is a Fortune 200 company that prides itself specifically on patent creation. And, and the, the nuances of that story that I love to highlight, first of all, are no one is judging the validity of thinking in his day that he's using thinking because he has all this space, but no one's sitting there going, what are you working on? What are you working on? What are you working on? While he's trying to follow a muse, mm -hmm. there's nobody interrupting him doing that. The other punchline of the story <clears throat> is that twice he was promoted into the innovation department because they saw this amazing track record that he had and he tried but he found that the jobs he was given were actually preventing him, literally preventing him from being creative. And two times now he has been voluntarily re-demoted back into security because inside innovation, he has to do too many tasks that aren't really free. Right. And, and so when you think of white space, you're going to think of the busy day and then the pauses in the day that are going to be interlaced. It's really important to understand that they, yes, they are for rest, but they're also for a lot of other things. And, and you mentioned filling. So let me just touch on that briefly. Sure. Imagine the days, the moments of the day, like a set of piano keys that are touching, and we want to open them up and interlace them. So there is space, not just a 30 minute chunk which is kind of executive style white space, but 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, manageable, interlacing, oxygenating space in the course of every single day. And we, we have a problem, which is when we do that, we have intense impulses to fill the open time intense impulses. If we see a block on the calendar that's unfilled, if we finish a project and we sit at our desk and we think we should take a little space, we instantly reach for the phone because we have no idea how to sit in that moment. Or I'm sorry, we're on a podcast, but podcasts become for me a primary filler. If I have three minutes while I'm folding laundry, those AirPods go in and I'm podcasting away, but it's all preventing us from understanding that when we step into the real space, that all sorts of things are waiting for us that our minds, they're just queued up outside the door, ideas and insights and revelations. And there we are too busy to hear it. And, and so it, I, as you can see, I'm incredibly passionate about this one simple shift, but it really is if we could make it, it changes everything. So as, as you're discussing this, I want to not not sidebar it a bit, but time blocking. So mm. yeah, so I... Time blocking is, I think, 
speaking of like we talked about the curse of, of insatiability, time blocking I think is a valuable strategy when used correctly, but I think a lot of people can hyper schedule, I think. Yes. Oh uh, man. Right. So um how I, w- I would love to hear your thoughts on time blocking, especially since Cal like blurbs the back of the book, and I know Cal Newport yeah. has some thoughts on blocking as well. There's, I think that that I, I just like to get your perspective on it because I have definite thoughts on the flexibility that you need within if you're going to time block, as opposed to just this is what I'm going to do during this time. Can we? Can you touch on that for a little bit? We should, because I've duked this out with Nir as well, who, mm-hmm. when I read Nir Ayal's book, I, there's actually a sentence in the book that says, purposely remove all white space from the calendar. Yep. And I called him and I said, is that really what you meant? And uh, he said, by the way, that he believes in blocking thinking time on his calendar. But I think I might be a little bit more of a missionary for the improvisational and fluidity of that calendar. That's why I don't use the term time blocking. Mm-hmm. I use the term time sketching. Yeah. Because I want it to be in pencil. Mm -hmm. And this is why if you look at alternative education, you look at where children go to schools where they don't have to be yanked out of a subject at the call of a bell, because what if they're right in the middle of discovering, yesterday my 13-year-old found something called a monkey orchid. What What is that? (laughs) <laughs> you have to Google it. Okay. You have to Google it. It's an orchid that looks, I wonder if I, I could screen share it at the time, but you have to, you have to look it up. It's a, an orchid that looks like a monkey's face. Wow. wow. Okay. So then he became incredibly fascinated about orchids and he was looking at stuff on orchids. And we started watching a Richard Attenborough thing on the oldest plant. that I've, Now in traditional education, the bell rings and now, sorry, pack up those beautiful thoughts and it's time to move on. And that happens in time blocking yep. also. Where if I'm writing an article and I've given myself an hour to write, it would be it would be tragic if the top of the hour caused me to stop a flow of good writing because it's time to do sales or something like that. So time sketching, if I think of it as with a pencil, it means that I'm constantly redesigning the day through the course of the day. I do make a block of what I want. And then the critical rule that we teach over and over and over because meetings drive our day is never let the colors touch. Mm -mm. If you imagine the color blocks on a calendar, you should see stripes. There should be white stripes in between every color time to, I mean, I could unpack, there's all sorts of things that happen in those white stripes, but having them is the beginning. Well, I mean, and it's simply because, I mean, you think about it even with, uh, and I talk about this with email, different email accounts means you use different voices, right? So being able to go from, Hmm. so I think that like, if I've got a, uh, for example, I've got the hello account and then I've got the mic account. Well, the hello account is likely a cold person where if they have my email, it's going to be a little bit of a different cadence, a different timbre maybe to the voice or, hmm. the, or the prose that I use. It might be. Um, but the same thing happens with like if I'm uh, – I rarely – I think it's happened on a few occasions, especially after summer, doing podcast interviews. I want that space there because even though I'm going to be doing the same type of activity, it's a different conversation. It's a different mm-hmm. – so I need that that – Time to breathe. I need that space, right? And what I like about time sketching is that, like you said, there's that flexibility. I I theme my day. So I give every day a theme. And hmm. then that way... Like circus night? Or? Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> So today, I want to know what the theme is. So, so today is today actually is is training day. So I like I will try to gear my activities towards training, whether it's training others, training myself. But when we Hmm. booked this, it was my media day, which is podcast video. So Hmm. my brain is wired for that. But then what happens is if I have a meeting, well, the meeting is it pulls me out of it. But then when the meeting's done, my brain doesn't go, well, now what? My brain goes, no, what day is it? Oh, it's Tuesday. Tuesday is is training day. Okay, what training tasks mm. can I do? So I look at the calendar more as a directory for my days as opposed to like the def- definitive actions throughout the day. And then the to-do list offers the details. I think those things, for me at least, they they need to, they, they need to work symbiotically. And mm. I think I, I know that when um, – I know there's some people that are like, I live and die by the calendar – and then there's others that everything goes on the to-do list, but the calendar's often white. I think they need to they need to work together to a degree. They do. And there's a there's an underlying problem in our psychology, I think, that fuels some of the conflict that you're describing, which is I think that we're starting to think that we are robots. 
And I, 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 I was looking at a CAPTCHA screen the other day as mm-hmm. I was clicking the box, I am not a robot. I am not a robot. I thought we should just have to click that every morning <laughs> just to remind ourselves that this precise kind of, I think of a Vegas dealer, like this quality in time management now where you show up and then you time block and then you transition and then you write your, it's too much. We're human beings. We're fluid and messy. And sometimes my child is going to come in and sometimes my mind is going to space out and sometimes I'm going to be hungry. And there is not enough of that in the definition of productivity. And productivity is getting tighter and tighter and tighter as we try to combat the challenges in front of us. And I think that the new productivity as we go forward is going to have to be spectacularly gentler just in that same soft, loving, um, real way that we all behave toward each other in the first two months of the pandemic, mm-hmm. where everybody was frail and kind, this is going to have to be part of productivity now, too, because we are not robots. Right, right. And and what I think is fascinating about work that you do, Cal, uh, again, near. I mean, all of us are exploring productivity from a different vantage point because, I mean, if you've Mm -hmm. been in the space for a long time, you see it. I mean, and and it's interesting because you said productivity is getting tighter and tighter. It's like the grip of quantitative productivity is being like, but we can see this. We can touch it. We can count it. Inbox zero. Great example of that. Like, I got through all my emails today. That must have been a productive day. I'm like, really? Was it? Like, was it? Or, you know, and whereas qualitative, this is the kind of stuff that's going to. That's humane, like as opposed to the inhumane stuff that we're. And what's interesting is when you talk about the thieves of time in your book, all of these things they're qualitative to a degree. You know what I mean? Like they're they're they they affect humans. Robots mm-hmm. don't get impacted by, you know, drive or excellence or information can clog them up, but it's only as much as the technology can handle an activity. Can we talk about the thieves of time because I think first off, a couple of them I think are probably pretty I wouldn't say uh under well understood by people or at least they're they're recognized. But they're probably not very well understood. They're like, oh, yeah, I get it, but how? So can we touch on those? We will. And let's give them some context first. Sure. My personal definition of productivity is that in the course of a day, I have made something better, bigger, or more beautiful. Love that. So I have to see a before and after experience. It was a thousand pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Now it's a golden retriever. It's important that I have kind of a before and after experience. Most productivity doesn't have that. We're Mm -hmm. so busy not letting things get broken or fixing problems. That's that that thing at the end of the day. So the thieves take us off of the true north, often of better, bigger, and more beautiful. They are, so that your listeners know them, drive, excellence, information, and activity. And the reason that they're thieves is that they are assets that have a tendency to overgrow. So in their their perfect state, they're assets, but drive becomes overdrive, excellence becomes perfectionism, information becomes information overload, and activity becomes frenzy. And the thieves like us to stay busy, checking off small wins and doing easy stimulating activities all day long That is not how you get to better, bigger, and more beautiful. If you want to see a before-after experience and something that you've worked on that it's better when you finish it, then you have to be very purposeful in avoiding the thieves. So a lot of the book deals with what exactly are the strategies. We use these questions over and over and over to disarm the thieves, to become objective about the thieves, and to give yourself power over them. Ever found yourself deep in a project, your flow state so intense that the world around you just fades away? That's the magic zone where ideas take flight and your work truly comes to life. But what if, in a blink, it could all disappear? Hard drives fail, coffee spills, and yes, even the dreaded accidental delete happens. But fear not, because Crash Plan has your back. Don't wait for disaster to strike. Head over to crashplan.com slash timecrafting now for a free trial and secure your creations with their limited time buy one, get one offers. Supporting our sponsors means supporting this podcast. So take a moment to check them out. 
CrashPlan is the superhero of cloud-based data protection, specifically designed for people like us who live and breathe their digital creations. CrashPlan ensures that every file, every idea, and every piece of hard work is safely backed up and protected. With CrashPlan Professional, you get unlimited backup for your computers, not servers or cloud apps, just pure essential data protection for PC, Mac, and Linux. This means your business plans, designs, music, and documents are continuously encrypted and updated in their secure cloud without you lifting a finger. Imagine this, your laptop takes a dive during a late night work session. With CrashPlan, it's not a disaster, it's just a minor hiccup. Their service runs quietly in the background, safeguarding every change you make every 15 minutes. And if the worst happens, your files are just a few clicks away from being restored with unlimited version retention acting as your personal time machine. For businesses, CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities are a game changer. Buy as many licenses as you need, manage them with ease, and let your team or your IT admin restore data seamlessly, saving precious time and resources. So go to CrashPlan.com timecrafting now to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited buy one, get one offers for a productive conversation listeners. That's CrashPlan.com timecrafting. Back up better with CrashPlan. It's as you bring this up, I can't help but think of the uh, the phrase that came up when getting things done kind of reached a real height of popularity, but the idea of polishing the runway, right? Like the four mm. horizons of focus and people are just spending a lot of time polishing the runway. It's the small things. They never really get into the sky. They're just spending so much time. Yeah, and I that, like that. That's those small wins. Can we... Oh, man, so much that I want to get into. But one of the things that I, I really love is just the, the title of the book says a lot. A Minute mm. to Think. How do you give someone the understanding and the, the know-how and, and the, the, even the comfort of knowing that it's okay to take a minute to think? Because I think, I mean, I've done this exercise in, in my talks where I've said, we're going to do absolutely nothing for a minute. And we, we don't. And I mean, I've, I've got some improv and stagecraft background, so I will like shift and, and you could see people, they're like, uh-huh. like they, they're like, it's, it must be almost <laughs> over. And right. very rarely do I actually do the full 60. I do like right, 42. Right, right. Like I, I used and, to do that too. Right. And it's like, because no one really understands how long, like a minute is a long time when you're actively in it, right? Like when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're, you know, you, most people don't realize there's a lot of power there. So can we get into that? Cause I think a lot of people go, I don't have a minute to think like, what are you talking yeah. about? And that's the problem with what sounds like if I, first of all, there are different categories of taking a minute. If I could have had a little sure. Santa scroll that would have come down from the front, it would have said, <laughs> or breathe or ponder or plan or create mm. or be a human. So there's just, we just want to give you permission to take a minute. And that sense of, we often only get to, can I just take a minute when we're angry or fried or really frustrated, that phrase comes out of our mouth like, I just need a minute. But that's because you really needed a minute six months ago <laughs> and you haven't been able to take one and take one and take one. So that it's so important to understand that there's not a prescriptive nature to that title. Right. If you take three seconds, five seconds, the getting things done, people would like, could you please tell me exactly the duration? Of, you know, that's uh, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's not my, pick a different, you know, yeah. writer. That's not yeah. me. But that sense of I need space interlaced, and this is the key word, interlaced in the day, not just in a scheduled chunk. It'd be great if you had some scheduled white space, but interlaced. I finish a task. I'm about to pick the next one. I take a minute to think about what actually serves me best to pick up next. I get an email that has an emotional quality in it and throws me off my game. And I take six seconds to feel that feeling so that I can move aside from it, so that I can have lucidity in my brain and have a craft a good response. These, these little interlaced moments of time are what we're talking about. And that's really accessible for people. Everybody can do that. Now, the reason that your participants were so uncomfortable in that exercise is that space doesn't remain empty. And this is one of the biggest misconceptions to talk about. If you take a poker to a fire and you lift one of the logs up and create a space, the flames will immediately lick into that space. It doesn't stay empty. And I, I was on the phone on a podcast interview with Guy Kawasaki. He said, so what about at home? What do you just, I just sit there with my wife and I just... 
And I, Guy is really brilliant, but he's been kind of a fun devil's advocate for me. And I said, no, you don't just sit there. What happens is that when there is space, then rich and wonderful things come into the space. Ideas, thoughtfulness, creative creativity at work, at home, all sorts of delicious, joyful activities that we don't have enough time for can improvisationally show up. I remember I haven't worked on my model train or cooked for fun or read fiction in so long. So this frees people to experiment with white space because making it stay empty sounds more like a meditation practice that has instruction to it. That is not what this work is about. It fills, but it has to be open in the first place to fill with better stuff. Right, right. And I noticed that as I've gone through my journey with productivity, and it, you, I would say I started with the let's get as much done as we can. Let's be, let's, mm. and the definition has shifted to the point where it's like, it's about getting the right things done. And you can't get the right things done if you cram your day, your time with so many things because there's no way for you to even know if those right. are the right things. Right. And it's, um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I really liked about the book, uh, other than, and, and by the way, if you read Oliver's book, he's going to talk about Busy Town in it. Richard Scarry's okay, Busy great. Town. Because so, <laughs> again, it, it, it's just when you get these different perspectives, and that's what I love about the book, because it brings a different perspective uh, in that it's supporting things that not only that you've been talking about in your work, but there's others talking about it. So the voices are getting, the, the noise that we've had about productivity, the way it was or the way it has been, yep. the other voices are starting to get louder and louder, especially, and I mean, I talked to another guest about this before. Yes, we've been going through the pandemic. We're still in it, but any, most of the things that have happened within the pandemic, such as remote work, all those things, they've just been accelerated. They were on their way. And I think this is just another example of that. And let's unpack that a little bit too, sure. because uh, uh, don't blame COVID. No. I, I've been doing this work for 22 years, going into teams that are so fried, they can hardly stand it. So we, we have to just be so careful that we don't make a temporal association with the negative um, forces that we're fighting. This is not only pandemic related. I think the pandemic has thrown a really frightening extra layer. Yes. Really, really frightening. And I think we're going to have to work very hard to undo the norms that we've acquiesced to mm -hmm. during this period as the workday has expanded, as meetings have expanded. Talk about not being a robot. People are just going to break. Yeah. But it's so important to acknowledge that this has taken decades to get us to where we are right now and that the stats about busyness were terrible before. Mm -hmm. And and the interesting thing is the things that have been helping us through this are the human things, the humane yes. elements. And so if we can add that humane element to productivity, which is what you're talking about in this book in so many ways, um, I think that we're going to be and in a much better place. Let me just throw in sure. one more thing, which is that interstitial piece I come back to over and over, what leaders who have heart are doing right now is they're giving their teams a wellness day. Some of them are giving them a, I just read an article about wellness weeks are starting mm -hmm. to happen now. It's really good and it's totally from the right place, but it's kind of a little bit analogous to taking a starving person and giving them a binge once a quarter. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So it is the interstitial presence of space. And you talked about permission. I was editing the book and we do this thing where we go through and look for repeated words. Cause sometimes as an author, you have a word you love and you say spectacular too many times or whatever your love it, word interesting. is. Interesting. You've probably heard me say, you know, what's interesting. Interesting. I say that yeah. a lot. <laughs> I just said unpack twice, but we, the, the word permission mm. is in the book 31 times. And I went to the editor and I said that obviously I got to start thesaurusing that one. Right. And she said, no permission and permission and permission. This is what we need is for it to be normal. Mm -hmm to stop, to breathe, to think, to step back. When it's normal, everybody can do it without fear. Yeah. How, uh, as we get close to wrapping up here, I want to ask a, a quick question about certainty, because um, one of the things that I think I've done, and going back to the theming of my time, for example, is like every Tuesday, I know that that's what that day is. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm engineering or manufacturing some level of certainty throughout my days. And I'm not fighting against that because I think a level of certainty gives that comfort and allows a place for space to live, right? So that 
You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to look at my to-do list and go, oh, I didn't get it done today. When's the next natural day? Because for most people, mm-hmm. the next natural day would be tomorrow. For me, it's like, oh, it's the default day isn't tomorrow. Uh, do you think that when it comes to the, the – we need both certainty and uncertainty. But when it comes to some of the stuff you're talking about in here, a good deal of it actually, that creating or cultivating some certainty around these things can be helpful? Or do you think that it's something that might be misguided? Like it might be misguided to try to look for that certainty or to try to engineer that certainty around some of – like, for example, the the spaces. Remember we talked about the spaces. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave gaps. And, oh, no, they're filling with things that shouldn't they shouldn't fill with, right? Oops, that was a engineering failure of sorts. Mm-hmm. So uh, can we touch on that a little bit? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, and, of course, it just went right out of my head. Hang on one second. No problem. Uh, I, it, the um, – it's like kettle corn. So kettle corn is good because it's sweet and salty. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that coming together of two things is a really good thing. So that sense of I can be certain and I can be flexible is something that we need definitely in our use of space. But I think that we need to err a little bit more now on the side of certainty because there's so much ambiguity in every other area of life right now that if we could find three things that we're going to say, I'm going to non-negotiably give myself space in three places. It becomes like a handhold. And sometimes those baby steps places of where to take space can be so gentle and accessible. My favorite sip of white space is the very first moment when between opening my eyes and getting out of bed. Just to take a second to orient myself to the day or to sit down at my desk and take a second to orient myself to the professional day, this is manageable for people. Little tiny tricks and tools like every time your computer or your phone is restarting to not do something else during that time and just take a little sip of forced space at that moment. Or I have one, I love to use the hand dryer in a public restroom instead of the paper towel because I, I got to sit there for 40 seconds and that wonderful forced experience of space. So I'm talking about manageable, tiny training wheel steps. I think for those, we should go toward an approach of certainty. I am certain that I need some space. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I'm going to be flexible because balance is like the stock market. It goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. And sometimes you're a maniac. Sometimes you're a week out of a book launch. And sometimes you're in the first month of a pandemic and you don't know what to do. So there are so many places that we are going to have ambiguity. I would probably vie for more certainty. Yeah, You bring up the jigsaw puzzle earlier. And I thought about this because I'm a big, like morning and evening routines kind of look like a jigsaw puzzle to me. The edge pieces, Mm. right? Like, you know what the edge piece, you're you're Mm. far more likely to know what that is, right? And the middle is, and I know, I mean, uh, again, we talked about the Yukon, my wife being up at the Yukon. Well, all we had to do up there were jigsaw puzzles sometimes. So my mother-in-law and I were working on a jigsaw puzzle and we poured it out and we did the the end pieces, the edges, the corners, all that. But then there were some, Mm. you know, when you open up a jigsaw puzzle for the first time and there's like a bunch that are stuck together that are actually yeah. the middle and you're like cheaty pieces yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're like oh good like it's like oh this is this is a win like i look at parts of the day that come together like that that are like that and mm. it's it's funny cuz as i think like my morning i try to do the same thing very small i don't like austin cleon talked about this on on the podcast as well but and in his book keep going talk about like portable routines routines mm-hmm. that you could take on the road with you or things like that 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 way there's, again, that certainty around it. And one of the things as you were talking about the idea of the, you know, you waking up in that moment, um, I have pour over coffee in the morning, every morning. Like I have a pour over machine and I, and it's not the grinding of the beans because I'm doing something during that time, but it's right. the, when I poured and I have to wait between the time when the, the, the water is going through the grinds and when the, the weight is hitting the right weight on the timer. So there's like this, there's like this. 15 to 20 second window consistently about four times where I'm just pouring and then I'm waiting. And I'm pour- and, but during that time, I know that there's stuff going on because I'm, th- I'm thinking about these things that just show up. And I think it's that certainty, like it's the sustainability factor and that certainty that kind of my brain goes, oh, this is, this is regular space I get mm. and it floods through. Do you think that happens too when, when it happens, when you've got that flexibility, but there is some level of... Uh, your brain knowing that there's space, like it's, oh, this is where space exists. Here you go. Like, do you think that happens? 
It does happen, but if you don't have a predisposition to think of space as a positive thing, you'll make it go away quickly. If you don't, if you don't think of that as restorative or nurturing or important, you'll be on your phone during every one of those 15 second breaks. Cause you could absolutely be sitting there with LinkedIn open doing both of those things. Sure. So that philosophy of, I believe the space is important, I think is, is critical. I also, you brought up something about those puzzle pieces together reminded me of kind of a beautiful image to, as we wind down is mm -hmm. there was a Freakonomics podcast that talked about something called headwinds, tailwinds, asymmetry. Have you ever heard this? I remember seeing that episode. I don't think I've listened to it though, but I remember seeing it in my, my podcast queue. <laughs> So headwinds are the things that are against us, everything mm -hmm. that's hard. Imagine a bicyclist going into the mm -hmm. headwinds. Tailwinds are, oh, this feels easier for some reason. All the I just dumped out four puzzle pieces and they're all already yep. did yep. the face of the golden retriever. <laughs> so that sense of we have an interesting quality that when bicyclists are against a headwind, they complain about it, they notice it, they feel it, they think about it all the time. And when they're with a headwind, they just think that they're a good bicyclist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And with, with the tailwind, the tailwind sorry, yeah, tailwind, yeah, yeah. they don't feel that sense of support. So one of the beautiful places you can use a little improvisational space is to pay attention to tailwinds all day long. There are great things happening, supportive people, supportive accidents, supportive twists of business that we just don't pay attention to them. We pay attention to what's hard. And so that is, a, if you want to start giving some little candy to play with in your pauses to figure out what to think about, that, that's a beautiful one to think about. The book is called A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Business, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, thanks for joining me today. Where can people Thank pick you. up the book and where can they keep up with your work? They can buy the book anywhere that they buy books. But for us, you can come to julietfunt.com. And there, the special thing we want to offer them is they can take a test called the busyness test. Mm -hmm. And it will make a very personalized assessment of what for them uniquely is getting in the way in terms of busyness and how they can open up more room for creativity and rest. This has been fantastic. Thanks for offering that. And thanks for taking the time to have a productive conversation with Thank me Thank you. Again, this is an episode that I wanted to make sure I brought back to the forefront. I'm glad I did. Uh, I can't wait to see what Juliet's got in store for us in the future. And I look forward to having her back on the show where we can have another productive conversation. In the meantime, you can check out all of the show notes, all of the links, everything at productivityist.com slash podcast five zero three. Another thing you can do while you're in your respective podcast application is click the subscribe button, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to the show. That way you don't miss a single episode of what we've got to come. And we've got a lot of stuff to come, but also you can easily search through the archives and find episodes that I have not unearthed from the vault that you may want to listen to. Gretchen Rubin, Annie Duke, Chris Bailey. The list goes on and on. David Allen, we just had him, we just, episode 500, we just, you know, we've had other conversations with him. There's so, so much in the archives and it's just easier to really search them if you subscribe to the show. So go ahead, support the show, subscribe, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Another way to support the show, of course, is to check out the sponsors that you heard during the conversation today. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors. You'll find the sponsors there and then you can check them out and that way they know that we sent you. That's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.